Welcome to a brand new podcast series from the Royal College of Organists. I'm Mark O'Brien and this is The Organ Podcast. Throughout the series, I'll be talking to some of the country's leading organists, catching up on major rebuilds and restorations, and finding out about some of the more creative uses for the organ. I'll also be encountering some rare and historic instruments along the way. Coming up in this episode, I'll be talking to Margaret Phillips about her long and varied career, as well as her extraordinary collection of pipe organs. And I interrupt Tom Bell while he's recording his latest Messiaen CD at Blackburn Cathedral. But first... I'm outside Manchester's Town Hall, and, and this is very exciting because I'm about to go in and see the early stages of what is one of the largest and most significant historical reconstructions of a pipe organ to take place in this country. And in order to do that, I've had to put on this high-vis jacket, some steel cap boots, protective goggles, and a yellow hard hat, because this place is one massive building site. For over five years, this town hall has been closed to the public as part of a huge multi-million pound refurbishment. And this includes the full restoration of a magnificent Cavai Carl organ that was built for this hall in 1877. Now, there are two organ firms working on this restoration, Nicholson's from Malvern in Worcestershire and the Dutch company Flentrop. And today marks the very first day at the start of a long process of returning this instrument to its original home. And inside is Andrew Kasky, the managing director of Nicholson's. So we're coming into the Great Hall now, which is the main concert space of the whole town hall complex. And um, this is the most impressive room in the whole building. You can see on the side here the 12 Manchester murals painted by Ford Maddox Brown. Beautiful paintings on the ceiling. But of course the great artwork in here, the best artwork in the whole building, is the Kavai Call organ. Which isn't here right now. We're looking at yes, an empty hall. Floorboards are up. I mean, this is a real building site. We've got plastic sheeting covering things, small walkways across what would have been the floor. And then at the far end, where the stage would have been, is an empty, very beautifully decorated, but an empty space. You've taken everything out. Yes, some three years ago, in fact. Um, this, the restoration of the organ fits within the context of the restoration of the entire Town Hall building, a colossal project. So in summer 2020, we took the organ out, and unusually, we took every last bit of it, the casework, even the floorboards in the chamber. And it's important to distinguish, I think, at this point, that this is an historic restoration. This is not a rebuild. Yes, I would actually call it a historical reconstruction. The organ was uh, built in 1877 by Kavai Call as a three-manual, and it was enlarged by him to a four-manual in 1893. And there was much excitement at the time about going to the world's greatest organ builder, but it was very interesting that by the early 20th century, the mood had changed, and suddenly we had an organ that was a bit different and unfamiliar, and there was a pressure to anglicise it effectively and the organ was rebuilt by Lewis in 1912 with a lot of tonal additions and then further work by Jardine in 1970. And our brief was to put the organ back not just into good condition but into original condition as Kavai Call left it. 
And the easy bit of that is stripping out all the non-original editions. The relatively straightforward but substantial in scale part of it is the restoration of the many surviving Kavaiakol components and pipework. But the really challenging bit is to make brand new in a period style all the mechanism that was once there but has been lost, like the console and the Barker machines. But we're not totally in the dark. When we dismantled the organ, we did it intentionally slow because we were looking for clues. And it was really fascinating, despite the fact that it had been nearly 110 years since Kavayakol's Barker machines and mechanical action had disappeared, there were still many tangible clues throughout the organ as to the form of them and the positioning of them. We were able to see silhouettes of roller boards that hadn't been there for 110 years. And that was able to, to tell us conclusively, for example, that the mechanical action must have gone along this way and then up there and so on. What it didn't tell us was, well, were the trackers four millimetres in diameter or five millimetres? And that level of detail we've had to go and copy from surviving Kavayakol organs elsewhere. Now, an interesting thing about this project, which I think is perhaps unusual, is that it's not just you, you're working with Flentrop in Holland. How, how has that come about? Yes, I think it's a great idea, and I would love to see more of it happening. We were very excited at the prospect of this project, but it's no secret, it would have been a, it's a challenging project, and it would have been quite a challenge to undertake on our own. And um, we were good friends with colleagues in Flentrop, and in discussion, we realised that they felt much the same way, that it was a, a project of real interest. But really uh, bringing two sets of skills and experiences into the project has, we both believe, led to a stronger offering. And uh, we're both doing half the project each and bringing, we hope, complementary skills. And it's been a really interesting experience working with other organ builders. But how does that work in terms of arriving at an agreed tonal design for the organ? I mean, are, are you having discussions? Does it, does it work well? You know, are there arguments? Or are you all agreed on what the end product should sound like and who's responsible for that sound? So uh, there, there's not so much a tonal design because we know what we're going back to. We know the original spec and actually the pipework had not been, compared to many organs, it hadn't been substantially altered. The majority of the alterations were in the mechanism. So there's a very clear roadmap as to how to get the pipework back to how Kivayakol left it. So there's not really much of a need for animated discussions on that. It's very clear what we're doing. Where there have been some uh, animated toing and froing is uh, on some of the restoration methodologies. We restore a soundboard one way because it's the right way to do it. They do too. The trouble is they're different. And that's no use in a, a project that is being done as a cohesive team. So we've had to go through the nth degree of detail in agreeing and challenging each other's prejudices and experiences and saying, well, this is how collectively on this project we're going to restore our soundboard. Well, can we walk up to where the organ would be? Can we get up to yes, the, the, where you're actually doing the work today? I mean, when you say that you, you, you've got the roadmap of, of Cavai Cole's pipes... I mean, is it just a question of when you put air back in and it will just sound like a Cavaicol organ? Surely there must be a bit of... There, there, is, there is more to it than that. Cavaicol's flue work 
Um, much of it is slotted, which gives it a slightly stringy quality, which is characteristic of his instruments. Now, when you say slotted, we're talking a... We're talking about a rectangular-shaped slot in the sidewall of the pipe, usually slightly down from the top of the pipe. And at the bottom of that slot, you have a, a curved scroll to, to adjust the length of the slot ever so slightly. And when the organ was altered by Lewis, those scrolls were cut off and replaced by tuning slides that lowered the pitch and covered most of the slots, affecting both the pitch and the timbre. Um, so that's an important aspect of the pipework that we have to recreate, getting rid of those slides and putting the scrolls back on to uncover those slots. Is there any evidence when you were taking this organ to bits that Cavai Cole might have made a compromise in some way because he was working to an English audience? I mean, I say that because, you know, here we are, peak industrial English town, at the same time, down the road figuratively, was W.T. Best with a big Willis in Liverpool. You've got Huddersfield across the Pennines, another Willis, very good instruments in Leeds, Town Hall as well. Would he have had that in mind, or would the people in Manchester have had that in mind? I think very much so, that, that there was very little compromise from Cavallo Cole's offering because the French organ was in vogue, really at the behest of people like um, Henry Smart and Graham Davison. Their influence on bringing in French sounds in the mid-19th century W.T. Best was actually one of the co-consultants for this organ and was one of the, with his partner, they recommended Cavalli Cole's tender and praised the organ unilaterally. So I think there was very little, if any, compromise tonally within Cavalli Cole's design for an English organ. Well, we're standing in the actual cavity of where the organ would be. And, I mean, it's very rare, actually, to stand in... It's, it's the A empty completely empty space. chamber, yes. It is. Yes. I mean, it looks 32 foot high, so that gives us some perspective, but it, it's not very deep. This must no, be quite a challenge for you, or for Cabot Coll as well. It is. It's a very cramped organ, really quite breathtaking to think that over the course of the 20th century, even more pipework was crammed into, into it. I think Cabot must have been disappointed at the tight space that was available. He certainly made the best of it, but it was necessary, for example, to duplex more of the grand org stops onto the pedal than would normally have been the case because there wasn't room for enough big bass pipes. And we're standing, this is where the Grand Org would have been, with the solo, solo organ, which us. is unenclosed, is above the Grand Org, right at the top at and the front. And then behind us to the wall, that would be the... Positive in the middle, with the racy above, and the pedal is divided either side. And then, because there was so little room in the chamber, all the wind-raising apparatus is not in the chamber at all. It's in a separate room behind, which we call the mezzanine tunnel. And you can just see in the bottom of the chamber here some um, holes in the wall for wind trunks to come through from the room through there. And how do you think, when it was new, it compared to other Cavai Col organs? I think it would have been right up there with the others in terms of its quality. The great and good came to play here, and it's very interesting that this was... The French connection was really realised. People like Guillemot, Saint-Saëns, Gigou, Louis Vierne all came to play here. But weren't there problems? I mean, the reason that so many mechanical changes happened, that people couldn't cope 
with a French instrument, I mean, the, the organists couldn't cope with that. Is that right? I think certainly some English organists found it a struggle to cope with. And this is something that you see the mood changing in the early 20th century. Because we're talking ventils, we're talking yes. the French style of playing, not an Imagine English. yourself a Mancunian organist in the early 1900s, and you've been asked to come and play for some event on the town hall organ. And you sit down at the console, and you think, right, I'll push this combination pedal, which will bring out these stops. Oh, nothing happens. And then you pull out the swell reeds and you play the manual, nothing happens. Because they're not combination pedals, they're ventils that isolate the wind supply. An ingenious system that was distinctive to Call and would have been quite alien to many English players of the time. And so that was a large driver in why the organ was altered in 1912. As much as anything else, it was to change the interface to the player. But you are going back to that. I mean, I presume you're not doing any sneaky general system or a, or a sequencer on the side. You're going, really, you have to know how to play a mid-19th century Parisian French organ. Absolutely. That's what you're going to end up yes. with. Yes. This is an organ that we would like to people to come and play on its terms, not on the player's terms. So what are you doing while you're here today? We're going back out from the hall now into the main body of the town hall itself, the corridors, what have you got to do? So today is quite an important day because this is the first day of installation. Um, As I mentioned a moment ago, um, part of the organ is actually out with the chamber and in a tunnel behind. And we're installing all the mechanism that goes in there. That's the blower and three reservoirs and some wind trunking. And that's all going in there just now to help fit around other different parts of the project that are in that area of the building. We laid up and down, Luke. You got that? Yeah. Okay, okay. There's one more panel to get next to the reservoir. Okay. Yeah. Put him down that way. Okay. So we're behind the hall now. We're, we're sort of at the back of the wall behind the organ, as it were. Yes. So you can see on the floor here the brand new blower that we have brought to site, and also the three very large reservoirs that we have re-leathered and brought. Obviously and these are cavai, I mean, apart from the blower, but these are the cavai core reservoirs? Yes, totally original to 1877. And what, they're sort of 10 foot long? By about four foot deep. And you've got um, three of them? Yes, very large, very heavy but uh, all the leather on them has been stripped off and renewed. You can see on the, on the ribs, the hinges of the reservoir, this embossed green paper. And this doesn't really serve any significant practical function, but it looks lovely. And this was something that Cavallicol did. Um, and we've had to get this paper specially made in France. And you don't know why it's there? Uh, it, it actually allows the leathering to be a little less than neat because you can cover over the edges, um, whether that was an intention or, or not. One of his tricks. Yes. And what's the time frame? So we're putting in the reservoirs and the blowers now. When do you think we will see pipes coming in here? Well, nothing itself is going into the organ chamber in the hall at the moment now until spring 2025. And we have an eight-month window for installing the organ to be ready by Christmas 25. So pipes will be arriving perhaps two-thirds of the way through that, late summer 25, perhaps. And for everything that you do in this country, how does this project compare? 
I think this is, uh, without prejudging the future, I think this is probably going to be a highlight of my career. And certainly it's been so rewarding to see the staff in our firm and in our colleagues in Flintrop marvel at the quality of construction of these Kavayakol parts that we are examining. So often there's a, perhaps a misplaced conception that all the organ builders of the past were wonderful. But when we're restoring a 19th century English organ, we often find things that, well, we wouldn't let that out of the workshop like that, but it's been in this organ for 140 years. None of that with Kavayakol. Everything is beautifully made. And it's a real inspiration for our staff to work on things that have clearly been made with such skill. Andrew Kasky, thank you very much. Pleasure, thank you. Now you may have seen some of Tom Bell's video diaries on the RCO YouTube channel about his research and experience of learning Messiaen's Livre du Saint-Sacrement. This has been a project of his that's actually spanned a couple of years, but he's now finally recorded this work at Blackburn Cathedral. I went over there to meet him at the console of the cathedral's famous Walker organ on the last day of a three-day mammoth recording session. It's exhausting. I've completely lost track of what planet I'm living on or what time it is or when I last had a meal. Um, it's a lot of music to record, but it's been good fun, really good fun. And why do you want to do this piece in particular? Well, I've always loved Messiaen's music. I love the emotive force of it. I love the message behind it. I love the way he uses the organ, you know, the, I mean, everything about his musical language I really enjoy. And this particular piece is often described as a, as a summation, and I, I think that argument carries some weight. So over the course of its 165 pages, you've got virtually everything that you'll find across Messiaen's entire output. The, the only thing you're missing, really, is, is the kind of wildness of the Leave Dorg, that period just after the, the end of the 1940s. Um, there's a little bit of that, but uh, the, other than that, you've got the, the whole gamut, really, of Messiaen's output in, in the Leave de Saint-Sacrement, which is, which is what appeals to me about it. Now, you've spent an awful lot of time over the last couple of years researching Messiaen's musical language, and you've been reflecting this in your vlogs. Has that process changed the way that you think of Messiaen or, or developed a new relationship you have with his music? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's interesting. There's, it's almost a subliminal process, I think. Um, I've never been particularly interested in knowing the nuts and bolts of how a piece of music works. I'm much more interested in, in, in how it sounds and, and its message. Um, that sort of dry way of looking at music has never particularly appealed to me. And yet, and yet, I've spent a lot of time learning more about Messiaen's musical language. And of course, that has helped me to think about, well, how he reflects on texts, for example, how he paints his pictures. So I'm still most interested in the, the broad brushstrokes thing. But that, on some level, that amount of time spent both with his technique and thinking about his beliefs and, and where he's coming from. That's definitely deepened my relationship with the music. The other thing which I've given a lot of thought to is freedom in playing this music. Messiaen was an improviser and a, a really gifted improviser as well and understanding that is foundational to, to approaching his music I think. Um, we can take a dry approach too often. You hear people playing exactly what's on the page and exactly how it's written, sort of counting it down to the demi-semi-quaver. I'm not so sure it should be like that. I I think there needs to be a lot more freedom and I think it's that that I've been exploring most of all over the course of the last couple of years. 
Well, of course, he, he did write this right at the very end of his career. It's probably the last piece of organ music he wrote. Do you think it stands out from all of his other repertoire for the organ? Well, I think it wraps up all sorts of other stuff. I think um, you'll find there's a sort of a straight line, a, a process of, ele- of evolution throughout his career. Messiaen in Le Bonquet Celeste sounds like Messiaen, and all these other elements build and grow through his life. The development of his bird music, for example, is a great example of that, different rhythmical uh, interests and techniques. And you, you find the whole thing in the Livre de Saint-Sacrement. You find the sort of end product, if you like. But also, I think, a conscious looking back at things which perhaps were things he did, but formed a less important part of his work. So, for example, in Movement 12, the Livre de Saint-Sacrement, you have some sort of quasi-serial music. Now, that's something that Messiaen was involved with in the late 40s, early 50s, but it doesn't crop up much after that in his music, just just here and there. And yet we find some of it in the Livre de Saint-Sacrement alongside more familiar sound worlds, the modes and so on and so forth. I mean, I've heard this described as his farewell to the organ. Do you think that that's appropriate? I don't know, because he, when he got to the end of his, or his embroiled in the latter stages of his opera project in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, I think he thought that he'd given up composing. Uh, yet somewhere in the background he was thinking in terms of writing another organ piece, I guess to say goodbye to the organ. But the thing is, by the time you get to the late 80s, after this piece and into the early 90s, he's back at the desk and he's composing again. And it's, it's entirely possible that had he lived for longer we would have had more organ music. I think that's quite likely. I, I don't think when he was writing this piece he anticipated writing another major orchestral cycle, for example, but he did. Well, we're here at the console of the organ at Blackburn Cathedral. You made a point of wanting to record this work on this organ. Why is that? There's no such thing as the perfect Messiaen organ. La Trinité uh, in Paris, of course, uh, is is the the root of his inspiration. That was where he sat and was creative as an organist. But we've got to remember he was a pianist first and foremost. And so he didn't go around giving organ recitals and playing lots of organs. So all his very specific registrational instructions, they, they do relate to the organ at La Trinité, but that doesn't preclude you from playing the music on, on other instruments. However, there will, of course, be compromises. So you can look at any organ on the planet and sort of see, is, is this a good Messian organ? No, it's not. It's missing that stop or it's missing that stop or the acoustics are a bit dry or, you know, blah, blah, blah. You could drive yourself mad trying to work out what the ideal instrument is. And I really do think that Blackburn is, is one of those ideal instruments. There's very little compromise. It's got that balance between romantic warmth. I mean, there's not as much romantic warmth here as there might be on some other instruments, but nevertheless, it has got some of that. It's got all the sort of piquant, sort of neoclassical sounds. I mean, the organ at La Trinité is ultimately a romantic organ with a load of neoclassical stuff bolted onto it. This organ, in a sense, is the other way round. It's a neoclassical organ with some, some romantic features. But well, nevertheless, you, you, you get the, you? Yeah, you get the same sort of balance. Well, two simple examples. Um, in Le Joie de la Grasse, uh, movement 15, we hear lots of these uh, fabulous mutation sounds like this. But there are also lots of opportunities to produce fabulous romantic noises, just like these very broad strings here. This is the end of, or part of the end of the 14th movement. So those aren't colours that you get on a, on a typical neoclassical organ. And it does help with the acoustic. Oh gosh, yeah, 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 it's fun. Not too much, not, you know, not too dry though, yeah. Olivia Messiaen, do you think the last of the the greatest composers of the organ? 
well, I hope he's not the last. Um, and there have been people who've written some really fabulous organ music uh, in the years since Messiaen died. But in terms of sheer quantity of music, quality of music and impact on the wider musical scene, I think Messiaen would take some beating in the 20th century, to be honest, and into the 21st. And what do you want people to get from your recording of this work? I want them to get the message of the music. Uh, I, you know, um, it's not some dry exercise in just rattling off a load of notes so I look good. Uh, so I want to point people towards something higher. That sounds incredibly pious, but ultimately that's what this music's about. So if you know that that's got to be part of it but i also want people to just develop a relationship with the with these pieces and and to you know discover that perhaps they really love messian or they're interested to hear some more you know if i could play a part in in that sort of evolution in somebody's musical tastes then great job done well i can see some recording engineers looking anxious in the the side aisle there so i'll let you get back to your work but tom bell thank you very much indeed for your time cheers thank you very much Margaret Phillips has performed all over the world, made numerous recordings and broadcasts, was Professor of Organ at the Royal College of Music for 25 years, and has received the highest award given by the Royal College of Organists, the Silver Medal. She also happens to possibly own the largest private collection of pipe organs in the country. I met her outside her home in Somerset that she and her late husband converted from an old chapel. We're walking along the side of the chapel, which was rendered in a horrible sort of uh, grey colour when we came, and that's all been stripped off. Uh, most of the windows needed redoing, and uh, there was also a hole in the ceiling of the schoolroom, which we're just about to walk into, um, which is a separate room to the chapel. Oh God, we're confronted by <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three, four, uh, five organs, and you've got two harpsichords. Yes, a couple of clavichords, although one of them doesn't actually work at the moment. These are domestic organs? Yes, that's right. They, were, they would have all been in, in houses originally, except possibly the clerk. Um, this is the one in, in front of us here at the end? Yes, that was, um, it was in a barn and had been taken out of a church, and uh, some of the pipes were sitting in pools of water. Is this a similar story to a lot of your organs? I mean, are you the, the Battersea Dogs Home for <laughs> organs here? Yes, it is, it is a bit like that. How did this happen? Because did you want to start, you call this the English Organ School. Was that your plan from the beginning? No, not at all. No, no. We, we were just going to um, have a, uh, one organ, the one we already had, um, built by Peter Collins. And that's this um, one over here? You've got, yes. This is where it started? That, that's right. So it was just the home for this organ? Yes, and this was going to be our sitting room. <laughs> but um, it di didn't quite work out like that. And you've got more? Yes, there's in, in, in the chapel itself there are, I think, five, I can't remember now. So this is the schoolroom. Um, yes, we're, and we're just going to walk through to the chapel. So across the corridor where we came in, another door. Um, and then we go into the, the chapel this is itself. The chapel itself. Five, there's five organs five. and two, two French harmoniums. So altogether you've got ten? Oh, there's, yes, there's another one um, that you haven't seen, which is down the bottom of the building. So I think there's, there's 11, I think. And the range of organs here, I mean, most of them are that early 19th century, late 18th century. So is that a particular important part of English tradition, you think, that's worth saving? Yes, I mean, there, there aren't that many um, original 18th century instruments left now. So it, it's nice for people to have the opportunity to hear and to, and to play those instruments.
And what's over here? And this is a tiny little. I mean, I love. Yes, these originally you've got candles sticking out. I mean, it's, yes. you can imagine this in somebody's sort of parlour. In a, in a yes, yes, we do sometimes light the candles when I play it in a concert. There, it has no um, electric blowing. This one, it's the only one that hasn't had a blower fitted. Oh, so, is this this broom handle sticking out? The yes, side, that's what somebody else can do. It. I, I oh, tend can to I do, do it this. Can we? Well, you can have a go. Let's have a go. So, so you what do I do? It. I pull it this way, or you pull it backwards and forwards? Yes. So literally, like. Yes. Like a rowing machine. Like, yes, exactly. Yes. And wh where is this? What's the story with this organ? Um, this was built towards the end of the um, 18th century, 1790s, by Gosh. James Davis, who was not a very well-known organ builder. And it was typical organ, I think, would have been in a country house. A domestic organ? Yes. What, what would be played on it? Well, they probably would have played hymns, actually, in oh. the, even at, at home. But also... Um, pieces for manuals only, as, as there were only manuals in England at that time. And it's just be entertainment after dinner or, you know... Possibly, yes. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that we know that much about um, what they were used for, these, these instruments. Right, so well, let's start. So what do I, I just pull this? I'm terrified, it's 200 years old. Well, you won't, <laughs> you won't break it. <laughs> so I, I just pull it... Yes, a bit further than that. Right. Oh, it's not stiff. Oh, there we go. No. And Keep going, because oh, I'm oh, not going to start. I've got to fill the bellows. Yes. So they've got a... Yes, no, that should be okay. okay. Oh, sorry, out. that's me. I've run out of wind. Sorry. Very good. <laughs> I was too busy you watching. You were doing very, really well, actually. I thought the wind would fluctuate, but it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Quite, uh, no, it, you, could, you can it. keep it quite, quite steady. I mean, you nearly didn't become an organist. I mean, violin was your principal instrument. In fact, you gave up the organ at one point. Yes, when I was about 14, I, I stopped having organ lessons for a couple of years while I concentrated on piano and violin. My violin teacher was, wasn't keen on the organ and, and sort of discouraged me, but... Um, I think it, it does inform the way you play because um, one phrases things so much more, I think, instinctively on a, on a stringed instrument or on a wind instrument, for that matter. And uh, I always remember Rafe Downs at one point said, um, well, bring your violin to a lesson. And uh, he had me playing some Bach fugue subjects just to see how one would actually um, shape them on the violin, which is not instinctive on the organ. And Rafe Downs, who was your, your teacher at that, that time? Yes, at the, at the Royal College of Music. I mean, yes. a legendary figure. This is a man who was instrumental in the design of the organ at the Royal Festival Hall. That's right. I got to play it several times because he would ask me to come in with him when he was practising late at night for a for recording or a concert, and he wanted to hear registrations as they sounded sitting back in the hall. So he would sit halfway up the stalls, and I had to sometimes sight-read my way through pieces he was going to play and he tended to fall asleep and then I didn't know what to do whether to sort of shout at him and wake him up or what to do it was it was really quite amusing but I learned a lot about registration from doing that probably more than I learned in lessons about registration. Apart from Rafe Downs you were also very lucky enough to have lessons with Marie-Claire Lang. Yes I just had one year with her in Paris in fact I didn't stay in Paris I used to go for lessons at um, she was a very, very lovely teacher, and uh, I did mostly Baroque music and uh, her brother's music, Jean Alain's music, which was very interesting to do with her. 
Were you in awe of somebody like that? She was so homely that you you couldn't be in awe of her, no. I mean, Rafe Downs was more sort of formidable as a person than, than she was. She was very keen on the sort of the, the modern thinking towards articulation and that sort of thing. And at that time, you were heading for the concert platform. Is that what you had as your goal? Yes, you could, you could say that. I, I wasn't brought up in the cathedral tradition, so I, I never thought of myself as going to be a cathedral organist. And not that there were any women at that stage, I don't think, who were cathedral organists. And is that what put you off? Did you just not think? I mean, could you have been a cathedral organist or was that just not what you wanted anyway? Well, um, I, I think if you hadn't... Well, as uh, David Wilcox once memorably said, when I, I played a recital at King's when I was still at college and uh, it was just about the time where King's was admitting women into the college for the first time and uh, he did say, well, maybe she should apply for the next organ scholarship and uh, he said, but the only trouble is she won't have sung the music as a boy which I thought was rather amusing, but um, that wasn't something I would have thought of doing because it uh, it would have been completely beyond me, really, having not known... You do need to know the music, really, and be in that world before you start doing that. Do you think you do? I mean, do you think you would have been good enough, capable enough of playing without having sung it? I think I wouldn't have been capable of doing it quickly enough because you have you have to play for several services a week, Which and if you don't actually know the music and you've got to start from scratch, that's a big ask. When you were starting out then, did you think that there was a glass ceiling anyway for, for women in the profession, for women organists? I don't think in, in the concert hall, no, because if you think of particularly French women at that time, Marie-Claire Alain, Jean de Messier, several others, that there were women who'd been really um, well-known concert organists, so I don't think there was a glass ceiling, and Gillian Weir, of course, before me. So I think from, from that point of view, no, and I, I never felt that um, there was anything hindering me, really. What was your lucky break? When do you think, you know, this is it? Um, I'm not sure that one's ever thought it was it, (laughs) but um, I suppose a lucky break when I think I'd just stopped being a student and uh, there was a series of strikes in London and a sort of three-day week where two days of the week there was likely not to be any electricity and um, there was an organist coming over from Canada, I think, to play at the Royal Festival Hall, and he wasn't going to come over if there was a possibility that he wouldn't be able to play the concert because there was no electricity. So at two days' notice, I stepped into his shoes, which was, of course, through Rafe Downs because he was more or less in charge of the organ recital series at the Festival Hall. So that was quite a a scary occasion. I played most of his programme, so I I sort of practised solidly for two days, I think, I don't think I could do that now, but um, with the sort of brashness of youth, one could um, do that sort of thing. So the electricity problem? Yes, I didn't career. have it. Well, yes, and I, <laughs> I didn't have any problems. When I went to practice at the Festival Hall and, and during the concert, there were no problems, so I was very lucky. And presumably that organ holds an affection for you because it was your teacher's organ. You knew it very well through him. You gave your debut on it, but you also returned to it when it was rebuilt, what, about 10 years ago? Yeah, some, something like that. It does sound, I think, very much better now, uh, partly because the acoustic of the hall is, is much better, so the, um, the bass of the organ comes over much better. And I, I really enjoyed playing it again. I mean, do you like it? I do, actually. I know a lot of people don't, but um, I think it does a certain type of music very well. I think it does um, 20th century music extremely well and, and some of the Baroque music extremely well. I mean, maybe it's not quite so good for the 
19th century music and it maybe hasn't got the warmth for that. But um, I'm very fond of it. As you say, it may be a sort of a um, nostalgic thing to a certain extent. And have you one instrument here that really for you sums up the collection in terms of representing this English style? Yes, I think the instrument is the Snetzler, which is in the, the, the other room. Um, so we need to go through there. And that really has the, the colours of what one thinks of as the typical English organ of the classical period. And the instrument you've got here is actually of, and would you say it's of world significance? Because it's Well, yes, most I suppose preserved. so. I mean, yes, it's, it's very well preserved, certainly. I mean, the English organ of the 18th century is, is in some ways not a very important part of the repertoire, so whether one would say that it Why was... Why not? Is that just because we're in the 21st century and we don't think so, or at the no, time? No, I think... It... I mean, if you think of the works being written at that time in Germany, say, by, by Bach, they are such sort of enormous pieces, really, compared to what was being written in England, which were mostly small pieces for small organs. So we had a completely different culture. But it's very nice to have instruments preserved from that time, I think. So what is it, as a musician, when you're sitting down here to play it, what are you listening for that tells you that, A, this is a good organ, and B, this is an English sound? Yes, I mean, one of the sort of archetypal sounds of the time is the diapasons, which um, a lot of English voluntaries had the first movement that said diapasons, which means stop diapason and open diapason. And it's a very gentle... I think it's a beautiful sound, and this this organ really does show this very well. But then there's also the very bright sound of the cornet, which is really distinctive, I think. I'll play a little bit on that. I suppose you actually combined a lot of other music making whilst pursuing your solo career. Yes, I think I was lucky in in that respect. I did quite a lot of continuo playing with various groups, early music groups, and also accompanying BBC singers. I did quite a lot of recordings with them, which was always interesting to do. And I was doing some teaching, and um, I played at St Lawrence Jury in the City of London, which had a, a weekly recital, of which I did quite a lot. So... There was one Sunday service a year, so um, one can't exactly oh, say really? that. Yes, that sounds like the dream <laughs> ticket for an organist, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, no, the main part of the job was to, to, to do or to arrange somebody else to do the weekly recital. And then there were quite a lot of special services. It was the Church of the Lord Mayor of London, for which I had to arrange a, a small choir, usually just of five singers, mostly sort of ex-Oxbridge organ scholars. Funnily enough, one of them who sang for me a lot was... Um, a young Harry Christophers, who was in the process of founding the 16. So um, it seems quite funny that I was actually directing him at, um, when I first knew him. 
But uh, he then got me to play with them quite a lot. I mean, a really fun collaborative time for you. I mean, they were launching out, they were new in that sense. Yes. So were you. And they specialise in early music and contemporary music. But that fits in with you. I mean, am I yes. thinking that you, you, you are at both ends of that spectrum, in a sense, of the early music and literally you can't get more further apart than early and modern. Why do you think that works in, in your case? Well, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at some of the early music groups, um, like Fretwork, for instance, they, they commission um, modern pieces. And I think it is just wanting to use the older sort of instruments in a completely different way, and it can lead to um, some completely different sort of music. You don't know what it's going to lead to, so it can be quite exciting. And then a major part of your, your time was preparing for your complete works of Bach. Yes, um, I mean, that started slightly by accident. Um, I, I'd already recorded some, some Mendelssohn in, in Germany, and uh, whilst looking for an organ to do that, I came across the organ at Grauhof, which is not very well known in Germany, but uh, or not very well known in the world, shall I say, perhaps, which seemed to me to be an ideal organ for Bach. I then recorded the 18 chorales on, on that organ, and uh, that was well received, so I sort of carried on doing more Bach. I, I didn't actually, in the first place, set out to record all of it, but having done that first CD, which went rather well, that then I sort of carried on. But you make it sound very matter-of-fact, but presumably <laughs> you... I mean, there was a lot of work in, in choosing the right... Because the entire collection of, of your Bach recordings, they're on different organs. Yes. I mean, there must have been a lot of travel and a lot of fun, I mean, window shopping for organs on which to make your CD. I mean, <laughs> I like is it like that? that? Yes. yes, I like the window shopping thing. Yes, it was, it was like that, yes. We, we would have, my husband and I would have trips across just looking at different instruments and, and assessing them and several which we then didn't use. But um, no, that, that was great fun, actually. And what was the motivation for this? Did you want to say something particularly about how to play Bach? Because it's very difficult playing Bach without perhaps a lot of critical analysis over authenticity, historical approach. Where was your head with all of that? Well, I'm just trying to play it as, as well as I could, and, and uh, one is often guided by the, the organs themselves for speeds and that sort of thing. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sl a slavish follower of any sort of school, I don't think, but I'm just trying to make the music come out of the instruments as well as it possibly can. I mean, were you pleased with what you did? Oh, I think, well, one hardly ever listen to them now. Do you not? <laughs> I mean, do you no. listen back to your recordings? <laughs> very yeah. rarely, very rarely, because usually you can find things, oh, I could have done that better, or that's too fast, or whatever. And do you listen to music? Do you listen to other organists, or is that... I mean, can you relax to that, or is it too much like, I've got to analyse this, it's like work? Oh, yes, I wouldn't. I hardly ever relax to it, um, sometimes for comparison's sake or, or whatever. I have to say, I don't, I don't listen to that much organ music. If I'm trying to relax for music, I listen to other music, not, not organ music. Well, perhaps you should just come down and uh, see the last instrument, which um, is in a different room. This um, grey instrument actually stood originally in the chapel. Um, oh, it's secure. <laughs> How big is this place? Well, there's a cellar down here. Um, and what's um, this? Oh, that's a, um, a barrel organ. Good heavens. Uh, <laughs> which was left to me. Um, yes, no, very peculiar. And that doesn't actually work properly at the moment, so uh, I'm not going to demonstrate that. 
into my study, which is a complete tip, but it just happens to have a William Gray organ in it. It's about 1810 or so. We don't know exactly. Now, it looks nice. Is it nice? Is this another example? It, it, of is, a... it isn't... Um, it's not as distinguished as the Snetzler in sound, I don't think. But um, Give us and, a diapason on it. Go on. Um, yes, hang on. Gentle English sound, yes. Well, how loud can these go? I mean, we've been talking about soft domestic organs, but I mean, what does a full organ in a very posh drawing room sound like? <laughs> um, that is the full organ, still quite, quite gentle. Still a beautiful sound. Yes, yes. It's a pity in a way that it's in this small room because um, it doesn't get heard so much, but it had to give way for the Collins on. <laughs> Any more coming? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> You've had a long but very varied career. Mm. Are there bits that stand out as the highlights? Oh, goodness, that's, that, that's, that's difficult, really. I think, I don't know, really. I think I've been extremely lucky and I've had a very varied career. So um, I think I'm, I'm just grateful, really. And do you play for fun? Um, not as much as I ought to, really, I think. Uh, there's always seems to be a deadline that um, there's a lot to practice. I mean, if I'm doing a concert here once a month, that's a, quite a lot of music. There always seems to be something to, to be working for. I mean, do you think you'd know how to play for fun? That you'd just come down <laughs> here to this chapel you know, and, and just, j- just play without any, without any reason to? Yes, I've, I, I've, I've hardly ever done that. So it would have to be something I'd almost learn, have to learn to do. So you clearly never stop. It, it's in your DNA to keep working, whatever's in front of you. If you had to stop and leave this behind, what was the one thing then you'd want to hold on to? Oh, I'd, well, I'd need to have an instrument. I think if, if I only had one instrument in a fairly small house, I'd probably have a harpsichord. Not an organ? I don't know, but... Not the uh, Peter Collins we're sitting at right it's now. Easier to, it's easier to just sit down and relax and play the harpsichord. Ah, so this is the relaxing bit that you've not yes. done in your entire yes. life. Yes, I mean, for instance, the, um, the Rubio copy of the Tuscan that I've got here, which is such a beautiful sound that I, I could just carry on playing 18th century French music on that forever. So that is your relaxing? Yes, I hadn't thought of that, but I think, think that, that probably is, yes. <laughs> Well, my thanks to Margaret Phillips for her time and for demonstrating some of her instruments. And just before I left, she did indeed sit down with her Rubio harpsichord. And here she is playing some Coopera.
Well, that's it for the first episode of The Organ Podcast. Do subscribe to this series as there'll be a new episode coming out every fortnight. Next time, I'll be talking to Martin Baker about his life since leaving Westminster Cathedral. I discover a darker side to the history of English organs when I'm joined by Professor of Early Music Magnus Williamson to explore a 335-year-old organ in the private chapel at Auckland Castle. And completely by accident, I bump into a man who's just found some unpublished original manuscripts by Edward Bairstow that have been sitting in an attic for the last 90 years. So until then, from me, Mark O'Brien, goodbye. Goodbye.